today I'm going to continue my series in which I'm reading excerpts from um, some of my relatively recently published books on the reliability of the Gospels. Today's excerpt is going to come from The Mirror or the Mask with some commentary on the excerpt. I will be talking today about the idea that fake points don't make points and the relationship of both fiction and history to the teaching of moral or uh, theological truths. And it's a really important idea and an important concept. You may wonder how this contributes to the argument for the reliability of scripture because a really diehard skeptic is going to say that the gospel authors were just deep-dyed deceivers and that they were doing everything they could to convince their audiences that what they were saying was true, uh, but they knew that it really wasn't. Now, that's a very strong position, and I, I would even call it an extreme position, and I think it is not tenable. I think that um, the evidence of the sincerity of the disciples is is evident in the book of Acts and in other places, especially when there are authors who are actually disciples and who were willing to risk their lives for this. Um, and I think that we have to realize that sometimes people try to find a middle way uh, to avoid one conclusion on one extreme or the other. And thereby, if we, therefore, that if we eliminate that middle way as a viable opportunity, we, you know, we push them to go one way or another. Uh, so on the one hand, we have the idea that the Gospels really are straightforwardly historical and that the authors never made up or changed anything. And on the other hand, we have the idea that they are uh, deep deceptions, you know, uh, deeply hidden. And other arguments that I've made are relevant to that and show that that's not tenable, undesigned coincidences, unexplained illusions, incidental confirmations, things that would be difficult to fake or that are too subtle and casual to be likely to have been faked. Um, but then there's supposed to be this third term, as it's sometimes called. Well, no, you know, they were, they were sincere, but they and their audiences both just uh, thought it was okay for them to sometimes make things up or change things to teach a higher truth. And uh, both openly, acknowledgedly liberal scholars will sometimes say that, oh, well, you know, this was uh, an attempt to to do something greater or higher than historical teaching. And then some evangelicals as well, because it, it makes a, it feels good, you know, like a moderate quote unquote position or a middle way where you don't have to say that either they were teaching real history or what they at least believed and were justified in thinking was real history or else they were just the, the deepest of deceivers. It's like, no, 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 there's yet another option. Um, and by eliminating that option, I think we can press people, especially since the deep dyed deceivers option is also not credible toward the historical option. Now in the section prior to the one I'm going to read uh, today, I was talking about the gospel authors in their own words and the disciples in their own words. So I was uh, having quotations like from the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, where he assures Theophilus that he's followed all this carefully from the beginning, uh, especially John 
19, where he says that he who saw it bore record and his record is true. Also, the things that Peter and John say to the Sanhedrin in, um, in Acts that they cannot stop telling what they have heard and seen. And Second Peter's statement that they have not followed cleverly devised fables. I have recently had an article accepted on uh, historiography and truth in the gospel genre in a journal, uh, I, the Journal of uh, Greco-Roman Christianity and Judaism. And I announced this on my Facebook page. I'm really pleased that was a blind peer-reviewed article. There I also go into patristic considerations and the, the early reception of the gospels and how they seem to have taken it literally. Uh, and not be thinking that it was okay to just change or make things up. So that is uh, important information as well. So I've laid that out. And then I have a section called How Does Fiction Teach? and a section called Fake Points Don't Make Points. So I'm going to be reading excerpts that uh, go from one of those sections to another, beginning on page 243 of The Mirror or the Mask. I really encourage you to get a copy of this. It is available in Kindle for a fairly low price. So here we go, how does fiction teach? When I was studying English literature in graduate school in the early 1990s, postmodernism was already sweeping all before it. There were only a few of us left, whether professors or students, who believed in the intrinsic value of a work of literature, independent of our own subjective manipulations. Those of us who did believe in outdated things like objective meaning used to spend time discussing art with a capital A. And one of the topics of conversation on occasion was the question of how fiction teaches truth. Is there some special way in which fiction, as opposed to history, science, or philosophy, teaches? If so, what is it? I think that I am now in a somewhat better position to answer that question, having studied epistemology for a few decades and having put that philosophical training together with my knowledge of literature. It has been said that the philosopher tells us that what is true of the postman is true of all men, and that the novelist tells us that what is true of all men is true of the postman. That maxim, though no doubt oversimplified, provides a key to the question of fiction's unique contribution and how it differs from the way that history teaches. The philosopher, when he is thinking about human nature, tries to find universal truths. He is delving into metaphysics. In contrast, the novelist or playwright takes things that we know in the abstract as truths of human nature and makes them concrete, showing vividly that they are true of individual people. It could happen to you or me. Hence, perhaps we know in principle that jealousy destroys lives, but it is in watching Othello that we find that truth brought home with horrible vividness. Perhaps we realize at some theoretical level that people are more complex than they appear, and that the outwardly hardened sinner may be harboring a repentance we cannot see. But it is when one reads Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead that one comes to understand that at a heart level and many other truths as well. A philosopher might say that literature shows the conceivability of particular states of affairs, and that is true. If you thought it too psychologically implausible that a person could romantically love two people at once, a novel may show you that it isn't that implausible after all by realistically portraying such a situation and making it vividly imaginable. But literature goes beyond that. It brings things home. It forces us to pause, ponder, and meditate on truths that we know otherwise but perhaps would rather not think about, or simply don't otherwise take the time to think about. In this sense, fiction, qua fiction, does not teach brand new things. And that's important. Some fiction, in fact, attempts to teach falsehoods. And then I give examples of falsehoods. Pernicious fiction, fiction trying to 
uh, imply that sex outside of marriage is no big deal or rehabilitate some monster in history or something like that. And then I say, when, on the other hand, a work of fiction teaches things we independently know to be true and importantly true, our hearts rise up and confirm the knowledge our minds already possessed. We understand more deeply and emotionally what we already knew intellectually. The function of fiction is to remind and to clothe the truth appropriately. The justification for believing the truth propositionally should come from elsewhere. The teaching we receive from historical facts is otherwise. It bears its evidential value in itself. This is true even before we bring God into the matter. The existence of Stonehenge and its artifactual nature, that is, that it was made by people, really mean that mankind can build a Stonehenge because it's out there. The stones are there, hard and incontrovertible. Stonehenge in a story would be science fiction. Stonehenge in England is archaeological fact. If a hard-hearted man of your acquaintance really does shed a sincere tear over a touching human event, and if you witness his weeping, that is historical evidence that he has an unsuspected soft spot. In contrast, if a mutual friend writes a work of fiction, putting the hard-hearted acquaintance into the work and sends a fictional tear sliding down his face, you will be understandably skeptical. You will rightly consider your friend's vivid imagination to provide little evidence of a real soft spot in the historical Scrooge's heart. Consider the difference between the way that history teaches and the way that fiction teaches with reference to a biblical passage, Jesus blessing the children, telling the disciples to let the children come to him, Mark 10, 13 to 16. This is not, I wish to make clear, a passage that, to my knowledge, has been specifically called into question by literary device theorists. But I think it makes the point quite well. Suppose that you seriously questioned whether this gospel incident happened in a historically recognizable fashion. But suppose that you wanted to emphasize to an audience the proposition, Jesus loves the little children. The passage in which Jesus takes up the children in his arms is ideally suited for teaching this proposition. It asserts that Jesus really showed love to little children in the real world while he was walking around on the soil of that strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. It is ideally suited because it asserts that Jesus really uttered recognizably the injunction to allow little children to come to him. But if this incident never happened, and if you knew that, then the passage doesn't provide you with any significant evidence that Jesus loves little children. It teaches that Jesus loves the children only as an apocryphal story. It may make us meditate on the love of God for all men. But if the story of Jesus and the little children is just a pious devotional insertion into the Gospels, its independent, historical, evidential value for Jesus loves the little children is virtually nil. As a fictional story, it is not evidential. Now moving into the section beginning on page 247 called Fake Points Don't Make Points, I, I give some quotations and remind the reader of various places where uh, scholars, including evangelical scholars, have said that John in particular makes um, symbolic points by using uh, either details or incidents that did not happen. Uh, it's even been suggested that perhaps uh, John made up the Doubting Thomas sequence in order to rebuke those who doubt Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Dr. Lacona has suggested that, though that's not ultimately what he concludes, but he's treated it as a, you know, on-the-table hypothesis um, 
and apparently is more plausible than some other alternatives, just not the one he opts for. So I give some of these examples. And then I say, in all of these cases, the idea is that the author was making some point, a theological or ideological point by making his narrative factually false. On these theories, the true facts were not enough. The gospel authors felt moved instead to invent things that never occurred, to suppress things that did occur, or to exaggerate. So, for example, um, Craig Keener talks about John deliberately suppressing the role of Simon of Cyrene and, and making it look more like Jesus carried his own cross for a, a longer distance in order to make a point, and they did it quite realistically. On these theories, the gospel authors believe that fake points do make points, that greater theological significance would arise within their narratives if they deliberately made their realistic narratives factually false. It is rather astonishing that biblical scholars could place such a mindset into the heads of the evangelists in light of the passages quoted in the last section. It should be evident from the previous quotations that these theories are grossly anachronistic and diametrically opposed to the perspective of the evangelists. To the gospel authors, the revelation of God in Christ was first, foremost, and centrally an historical revelation. The enormous thing that had happened, that they had to convey to the world, was that God became flesh, that he came down from heaven, and that here on earth he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Messiah and brought salvation in his own person. It is because these things happened that they can have significance. If they did not happen, they cannot have significance. To quote Leon Morris, explaining the mindset of the author of John, quote, in the face of those who assert that to John, the spiritual significance is everything and the historicity immaterial, the question must be pressed what is the theological meaning of something that never happened? The very idea of bringing out theological significance seems to imply respect for the facts. What did not happen can scarcely be called redemptive." End quote. This, I go on, is why the beloved disciple so strongly emphasized that, emphasizes that these things really happened to fulfill the scripture. Jesus' bones were not broken, so scripture was fulfilled. John 19.36 if his bones had been broken, that particular scripture, probably Psalm 3420, would not have been fulfilled by the event. Fake points don't make points. Jesus' garment was not torn, and instead the soldiers cast lots for it. This really happened, and that is how Psalm 2218 was fulfilled, John 1924. If John simply made up the casting of lots, it would not have fulfilled scripture. Fake points don't make points. And now I'm going to start talking about the idea that Matthew is uh, midrash in his infancy narratives. When Matthew narrates the flight to Egypt, he says, Matthew 2.15, that this event fulfilled Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. You may certainly puzzle over Matthew's application of 11.1. 1. You may ask what Matthew means by fulfillment. You may wonder what sort of parallel he is drawing between the events in Jesus' life and the events in Israel's history described in Hosea 11. But what you cannot doubt, if you are a reasonable person at all, is that Matthew is saying to his readers that the flight to Egypt and the return from Egypt really happened in the life of the infant Jesus, and that this event fulfilled something written in the Old Testament in some sense of fulfilled. Now, Douglas Moo had an exchange with um, Gundry over this Midrash idea in the pages of JETS. 
and I'm going to quote here from Moo. Douglas Moo comments trenchantly concerning Matthew and the Christian worldview. Quote, Matthew writes from the conviction that the decisive revelation of God had recently been manifested in the historical actualities of Jesus' life and teaching. To say that, and then I, I think he's actually quoting Gundry here, Jesus said or Jesus did need not always mean that in history Jesus said or did what follows, unquote. Attributes to Matthew an unconcern with history, this is still Moo, that seems to me at odds with one of the most distinctive features of the Christian message. I am suggesting the concern for history and historical actualities, which is the essential byproduct of the Incarnation, kept Matthew from combining history and non-history, end quote from Moo. For Matthew, as for John, theological significance and literal events are inextricably woven together. Fake points don't make points. And that's the end of that excerpt from The Mirror of the Mask. I encourage you to get a copy. Once again, the epistemological significance of this in favor of the historicity of the Gospels is that their apparent sincerity and their appearance of commitment to the idea that things are only significant if they really happened means that they would have to be really deep-dyed deceivers if they were writing these works and they knew that these things did not happen. And I think quite rightly, uh, many scholars, both liberal and conservative, have been hesitant to attribute that degree of deep-dyed deception not, I think, uh, necessarily out of squeamishness and, oh, we don't want to be mean, but because their, their sincerity actually appears uh, to be for real and not faked. So that's where this has that evidential significance. I'm going to ask you to think about that this week, that fake points don't make points. And I'm going to ask that you would consider very seriously getting hold of a copy, either Kindle or physical, of The Mirror or the Mask. It also my other more recent book, The Eye of the Beholder, about the Gospel of John. It goes into more of that concerning John. Please like and subscribe to this channel for more great content. Thanks for watching.